please turn to Revelation 14 as we continue our journey through the book of Revelation together. I'm just going to begin this morning just by uh, reading the text with you as you would follow along. We'll be reading verse 14 through verse 20, and then we'll come back and really just make some brief observations. None of you believe that at all, if you're listening at all, that the observations will be brief. They will, in my understanding anyway. Revelation 14, beginning with verse 14, as I read the entire text, please follow along. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat upon the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Another angel came out from the altar place, the angel, that is, who has authority over the fire. He called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth. He gathered the grape harvest of the earth. And he threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress, belonging to God, was trodden outside the city. And the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle. For 1600, my translation says, stadia. Coming back to this passage here that perhaps you have read before and perhaps you have not, I want to encourage you this morning that this passage ought to at least, as is very simplistically expressed as we walk through it from two points, it's very obvious. You already know the the thrust of the message as it was just broadly read to you. That there the consistency of the testimony of Holy Scripture is that there is not spiritual neutrality. This is the thrust of what we're confronted with, each of us, me and you, all of mankind, since the beginning of Revelation 14, where at the beginning it's saying the eternal gospel is being proclaimed to all people, all languages, all nations, all tribes of the earth. One gospel. The call of this gospel through the Lord Jesus Christ is fear God and give him the glory. He has set his glory on the Son. This Son, who in the great Christmas story, is the miracle of all Christian miracle. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Lived a righteous and obedient, perfect life, obeying the covenant before the Father for all the covenant breakers. 
This is Jesus of Nazareth. In his righteousness, not resisting the cup that the Father had given him to drink, but he drank the cup. The wrath of God. Laid down his life in drinking that cup for sinners. Suffering God's just condemnation upon the sinner in his own body. First century, Jesus of Nazareth. Did indeed die on that Roman cross and was buried. Raised by the Father three days later. Exalted on high. And the church now vested with this message proclaims his glory through his gospel. Calling for all men everywhere, repent and believe. To the church of Jesus Christ, as we'll quite easily walk through this passage this morning, I wish to strengthen you that you're hidden in him by faith. Forsaking your sin and recognizing it as such. Sin. Law-breaking. Disregard for God and His glory, which the eternal gospel says. Submit to God and give Him the glory. And each one of us within our lives are filled with guilt for not fearing God and giving Him the glory. And there is only one eternal gospel for all. All of us. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Condemned in my place he stood. Raised for my justification. This is the proclamation of the eternal gospel. For those of you this morning who rejoice at that truth who are hidden in Him by faith. I want this text to confirm you. You're His. He is yours. All that is His is yours. Today and forever. For those of you who have said, I don't have time, and the complexities of life don't seem to square with this eternal gospel doesn't seem to sink, doesn't seem to settle that with which I am faced. I'm a bit skeptical, and perhaps I'll reconcile at some other point. Or maybe you just like belonging to a religious community for fellowship and friendship, but yet the commitment to Christ, fearing God and giving the glory by looking to Jesus the Son, is not necessarily your point um, of conversion. I do hope that this text will confront you. Because the biggest picture of this text is all of us face that. Confirmation or confrontation from the text of Holy Scripture. Not one of us walks out of this room in neutrality. If we look at this passage this morning from two points. There's quite obviously two things emerging here. Number one, the appearance of the Son of Man. You saw Him. He appeared on a cloud. There is one who appears on the cloud, the appearance whose name is the Son of Man. 
number one, we'll just deal quite obviously with that in-breaking picture. One appeared a son of man, his appearance on the world stage to culminate redemptive history. And number two, how he culminates redemptive history, the great work of the harvest. These are the two elements of our passage, the appearance of the son of man and the work of the harvest at the culmination of world history. There is one harvest, two works within one harvest, not three. There isn't one reaped unto salvation, another one reaped unto damnation, and then all the neutral people that coast into neutral eternity. One harvest, one son of man doing the reaping. Two parts, not three. I hope to confirm your heart, strengthen it in your blood-washed linens, or to confront that you're naked, undone, not hidden in Christ, and will be judged. So looking at this passage, then let's deal with the first piece that I've laid out. Number one, the appearance of the Son of Man. There is a question as we look through the text. If you look with me at verse 14, where we begin with the appearance of the Son of Man on the world's history, uh, on the world's stage. Then I look, this is John speaking of his visions, as he has throughout the book, and behold, I saw a white cloud. If, if you'll note with me the role of the cloud of verses 14 through 16 in this very first reaping event of the appearance of the Son of Man, you could kind of take what I've done in my text of Scripture is, again, I've just kind of marked out the repetition that John is really laboring to uh, graphically draw the picture so that we can grasp as believers who is this Son of Man who appears. How does he do so? We'll look at the role of cloud. Verse 14, I saw a white cloud and seated on the cloud. So you see a cloud emerging on the centerpiece of the stage. I saw a cloud. And then there was seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and sharp sickle in his hand. Verse 15. To him who sat on the cloud. Verse 16. He who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth. So what does this how does this role of the cloud help us identify who the Son of Man is? Because sometimes there's a, there's a comment here by some who say this Son of Man here who is emerging on the world stage at the end seems to be an angel who is empowered in some way or vested with authority to do the work of judging the earth, reaping God's people and also judging those who are not God's people But how are we to understand it? Are are we to receive it? Why do they think it's perhaps an angel in verse 14 who is called a son of man? We'll look at verse 15. This is how. Follow the text. And another angel came out of the temple. So are we to say that verse 14 is an angel who appears on this cloud? And another angel who shows up and gives command. Well, if you look with me as we've been walking through this chapter for a few weeks now, in verse 6, then I saw another angel, verse 8 of chapter 14, and another, a second angel, then verse 9, and another angel, a third angel, and verse 15, and yet another angel, 
verse 17, and another angel, verse 18, and another angel. So these angels, the sequences of angel and angel and angel is not to say that the Son of Man is an angel and another angel came after him. The anotherness of the angels is in coordination much earlier than simply following the Son of Man. You see the flow of the passage. Another angel and another angel and another angel and the Son of Man. Now let's get back to what I see. And another angel, and another angel, and another angel. So you see the, the sequence of the angels appearing to execute the plan of the Father. But there is a distinction with this one who has just now appeared on the cloud. He is not just another angel. It is unmistakably the Lord Jesus Christ. We know this if we step out of, I, I think I can prove it as I have kind of put forward to you just in a basic reading of the passage. You can see how the sequence of and another angel does not demand that they're speaking of Jesus or the Son of Man as an angel. You can see that right in the text. But if we step right out of this text as we ought to and we consider the whole of biblical history, because again, we're dealing with the culmination of biblical history right here in this text. So it strengthens us to understand where was this begun in order that we'd understand how it's being culminated. Well, it takes us all the way back, as we have looked a few times throughout the book of Revelation, to the book of Daniel. Where in Daniel 7, Daniel sees one who is like the son of man. And, and, and how is he operating? Where does Daniel see him in his glorious vision? Riding on the clouds. Unto the ancient of days in his heavenly court. Do you see the role of the Son of Man riding upon the clouds? Then you come across, you keep reading across out of Daniel now, jump into Jesus' ministry and how Jesus uses this image of Son of Man to speak of himself. Matthew 24. If you look at Matthew 24 there, just briefly, so that we can see, indeed, the appearance of the Son of Man. And this is going to be critical as I apply the text to you, that you deal with this appearance of the Son of Man. By Matthew 24. Look at Jesus as he's spoken here in Matthew 24 of the end of redemptive history. Very similar to what we're seeing right here in Revelation 14. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaped. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Look what he does in verse 31. This son of man, he is not an angel. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This is Jesus speaking of the great returning event where he inbreaks, just like we're reading in Revelation 14, coming back upon the world stage to gather his people in the great harvest of God. He is going to gather people from all over the earth. 
That's exactly what we've seen in the first portion of Revelation 14. Every tribe, every people, every language, every nation. That's what we saw in Revelation 5 when we're gathered unto him before the throne. How many people groups are there? God is gathering people from every people's group to be before him in the throne, exalting the Lamb who is worthy. Why? Because he ransomed people from every tribe, language, tongue, nation, by his blood. This is the same appearance in Revelation 14 where he is appearing to do just that, gather his elect. In Acts chapter 1, so we just kind of briefly looked at Daniel where we can kind of begin to see who is this one who is emerging as a son of man. Indeed, it is the Lord Jesus Christ from prophecy of Daniel, lived in the ministry of Jesus, Matthew 24. And then after Jesus resurrected, do you recall as you're reading through your Bible, we're all way behind in our Bible through a year, aren't we? You've got about uh, uh, 65 books to go in the next two months. So as, as, as you're reading through the text of Scripture and you get to the book of Acts and you see the resurrection of Christ as he's ministering to his people, speaking about the kingdom of God, for the king is resurrected, telling them about the powerful gospel of the kingdom. And you are my witnesses. The Spirit is coming upon you to do the work of proclaiming the eternal gospel that we see once again in Revelation 14. And in that moment, he is taken up into glory for the king is being coronated, his ascension to the Father's right hand. The king is honored in his resurrection raised for our justification. We are his people. And as he leaves and he goes up onto the cloud, the angel appears and says, why do you stand gazing into the sky? This Lord Jesus, who just left you, will come back to you in the same manner. Riding upon the clouds. Then we get to Revelation 1. Revelation 1, you remember I just read for you out of Matthew 24. Jesus says, and when he does appear with power and glory, nations will mourn at his appearing. Probably not the neutral people. They'll be okay with it. They're just going to kind of keep going. But wait, there are no neutral people. Revelation 1 repeats Jesus' words of Matthew 24. When the Son of Man appears on a cloud, nations will mourn and weep when he comes. Why? Because they didn't submit, fear God, and give him the glory. In a word, as they weep and wail, it is too late. And then we watch right past the first portion of chapter 1, where I think that's around verse 6. It's describing this one who will appear. And the nations will weep and mourn as he is coming just as he promised. You remember Jesus, he spoke to his disciples. This is always greatly strengthening to me when I had a chance to preach through the book of John. John's disciples are nervous. This is just strengthening to me, I hope to you, as you consider the return of the Son of Man for his home. And they said, you can't leave. We've left houses and families and, 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 and jobs and scares for you. 
Where are you going? Where I go, you cannot come. This is it. You're going to leave. You're going to leave us like this. Fear not. Because where I'm going, I will come again. I'll take you to be with me. Putting their minds around that, he says to them, if it wasn't true, I wouldn't have told you that. This is the truth of the biblical testimony. The Lord Jesus Christ is returning. If it wasn't true, he wouldn't have told you that. Nations will weep and mourn at the truthfulness of it when it occurs. Those who won't are those who are hidden in him. That's the second half of chapter 1. John sees a vision. I hear a voice that is like the sound of many waters. And he turns, and guess who he sees? One like the Son of Man. And goes on to speak of his glory. His feet are burned. And out of his mouth comes his tongue that's like a sharp two-edged sword with which he strikes down the nations. He is full of majesty and glory. Jesus said when he appears, that's exactly what you'll see, glory and power. those who had no time for him. This is the biblical testimony. So his identity, if we come back to Revelation 14, I think that it stands clearly in the testimony in Scripture that he who will appear on the earth stage to culminate redemptive history and gather God's people is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let's further his identity. So you see first his identity, then look at his role in judgment. Or look with me at the text. You see, not just his identity, as I hope is clear by the role of the way John has painted the picture of him. He who rides upon the clouds is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ. But look at his role in judgment. Verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice. Again, the other angel is not another one like the Son of Man. I, the sequence is probably verse 9. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. That is the distinct one. The son of man who sits riding on the cloud. And he says to him, put in your sickle and reap. For the hour has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. This is another one here where we kind of got to work through our passage to recognize the role of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. His role in judging the earth. Some will say at this point, perhaps it is an angel because there's an angel telling this one, this Son of Man, what the Father's will is or when it is time to judge the earth. When he, he's getting a command from one and he's executing that command. Does that seem like a function of the Lord Jesus Christ? Who will receive a word and then do it? Isn't he the one who gives the word? And the earth is harvest? But if we think about the role of the Lord Jesus Christ in judging, we recognize there is nothing inconsistent here. 
The Lord is always, that is, Jesus is always in submission to the will of the Father. It is the Father's decrees that the Son is executing. That's the same picture we see here. Jesus spoke this way of his own ministry as one who is under or in submission to the Father in executing judgment. He spoke this way, if you wanted to jot this down, it's Matthew 24. We were just there, but I read for you without having to go there. Matthew 24, this is the way the Lord Jesus spoke about receiving commands of judgment from the Father. He said, quote, concerning that day, as the disciples are asking, when will you come? How is this all going to go down? He said, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. So you can see right there, an angel is receiving when it is time. Jesus goes on to say, nor the Son, but the Father only. So here in Revelation 14, we see the exact same thing. Not even angel knows when the timing of execution of God's purposes for the earth is to occur. And an angel coming out from the temple place, that is, receiving a command of God, then instructs the Son. Now is the appointed time of judgment. Gather your people. Administer justice to those who are not your people. Acts, uh, another reference if you want to briefly turn there. I'd like to read for you Acts 17 back just a little bit. Or I can just read for you if you'd like to sit and listen. But Acts chapter 17 verse 30 helps understand this work of the Lord Jesus Christ. as he who judges all men everywhere. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Again, saint, meditate on that text. Meditate there. How many people, please, how many people need repentance? How many in the earth need to hear the eternal gospel? He commands as one who is authoritative. That is, the king commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Do you see the word here? Here is Jesus, the appointed servant. And of this, he has given assurance to all. How do we know that the Lord Jesus will execute judgment? How do we know that he will come? The assurance is that he has raised him from the dead. That is quite simply the picture we're receiving in Revelation 14 and exactly what Jesus spoke Matthew 24. And the apostles confirmed in Acts 17. Jesus is the judge of all of the earth. Jesus says it this way in John's gospel. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment over to the Son. He then went on to say in John chapter 14. I am the way truth and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The Father has given judgment to the Son. 
the eternal gospel is centered upon the Son. The Son is the way, the truth, and the life. All of redemptive history, what we're living right now, centers on the Son. He is not only the one who will judge, he is the standard by which you will be judged. If you've read your Bible or attended enough services to gather as a, as a saint of the Lord, you've, you've learned of Christ's perfect righteousness. You have trusted in Christ's perfect righteousness in exchange for your law-breaking, your sin. You've recognized at one point you could never be the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not, you will be judged. You found it critical by grace that you relate to the Lord Jesus Christ rightly by faith. Because everyone, everywhere, Acts 17, will be judged not only by Jesus, but according to Jesus. You cannot stand, friend, in the law court of God where Jesus is your standard. You must relate yourself unto Jesus. You must, by faith, repent of who you are in full acknowledgement that you cannot stand before him. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the source of life. Be reconciled to God. Submit yourself unto Christ and receive in exchange for your dirty, filthy clothing, blood-washed linens, pure and holy, so that when he appears on the clouds in great glory and power. Your hands are raised. Deliver me. There will be no weeping and wailing for you, but blessed joy. This is what we see in Revelation 14 as he who is appearing as the Son of Man. The second portion I said again we will just look at the work of the harvest then as we see that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the judge. He is the standard by which you will be judged and he is indeed receiving the command from the Father at the appointed time to bring forth judgment. It's important if we look at our second portion of the text we need to recognize there are two harvests actually taking place in the one harvest. Or as I said to you, there's one harvest and there's two parts. The first harvest seen you see there in verse 14 through 16. What is the first harvest? But it is a wheat Harvest, And the second harvest is a grape harvest. The harvest of grain there in 14 through 16 is the harvest of grain. And what is the harvest of grain? But it is symbolizing the church being gathered in the eternal glory. The church, that is Matthew 24. He will descend in great power, power and glory and he will gather his elect from the four winds of the earth. This is Jesus fulfilling his covenant. Not a single one of them will be lost. I will gather them as he's doing right now through the eternal gospel. He will do also on that day he appears. Not one of us 
will be lost. He comes with glory and power to gather his own. This is the wheat harvest. And then you go there next into your passage and you see there is clearly yet another work going on with another angel as he appears to do that work of the grape harvest. And the grape harvest that is 17 through 20 portrays the gathering of the wicked for destruction. Notice once again, I know I'm beating it as though it is a dead horse and I'm acting like I have victory over it. But if I could just once again express to you, there is not a third element in the harvest. There is the wheat unto glory and the grapes unto wrath. How do we know that there are two uh, uh, kind of uh, three little things here if we could acknowledge from the passage that help us as students to recognize that there is two, indeed two separate harvests taking place in this one harvest. How do we know the first one is a wheat harvest? We don't see wheat anywhere in the passage. So we're kind of begging, we're asking the question, how do we know then it's a wheat harvest if we don't see the word wheat or grain anywhere in the passage? Verse 15, another angel came and said to him who sat on the cloud, Put your sickle in and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. That term, ripe, is a term for, quote, dried out. It's speaking, it's used agriculturally as when the wheat within is dried out or ready for harvesting. So it's a, so it's a gathering of good wheat. It is dried out. It's ready to be harvested. It's building on what you've already seen about the church in chapter 14. This, this harvesting of the wheat, that is the harvesting of God's people, is the second part of what you've seen in the first half of Revelation 14. Do you remember as he describes the church there, the 144,000? He describes them as following the Lamb wherever he goes. They are the first fruits of all who will come after You see that in Revelation 14? This this is the same agricultural language. Verse 4 of chapter 14. It is these who follow Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind. As same picture. First fruits. That is the initial harvest for God and the Lamb. This initial harvest here of the martyrs in Revelation 14 is continued when the Son of Man comes and it is fully ripe, and the harvest is complete. God is gathering his home by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is judge over all mankind. So he is gathering his own. Now if you look at the second thing there, so we see that the term ripe is really dried out. It refers to grain, which unites us to the first fruits of Revelation 14, and we see it as a positive ingathering of the wheat from among the tares as the full harvest of the people of God. Number two, we see that it is distinct in the two roles because the other, the, the um, harvesting of the earth, if you look there in verse, um, verse, nine, uh, verse 19, no, excuse me, verse 18, the last section there, showing that it's a separate harvest. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. This term ripened, it's its only usage throughout the New Testament here to speak of a negatively full ripeness. That is an overusage. It is fattened or plumped. It is a negative harvesting. 
And it continues as a negative harvest. And we know so that it is not a positive ingathering, but it is a negative harvesting by verse 18. This is the second harvest I trust will confront you or confirm you as a saint of the Lord or one who is not. Verse 18. Another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who has authority over the fire. Roll of fire. We know that there's a distinction between the first reaping, that is the gathering of the wheat from among the tares, the people of God, and now appearing on the scene is the angel who has authority over the fire. The term fire is used 24 times throughout the book of Revelation. I'm no statistician, so I'm just sharing it with you because I think it will be strengthening to your interpretation. 24 times throughout the book. 23 of those 24 times refer to judgment. We have a shadow cast all over the great harvest of the earth. The angel of judgment who appears. He who has authority over the fire. Do you notice where he comes from also? He comes from the altar. So far we have seen the altar place in chapter 6 is where the martyrs whose blood was spilled by testimony of the Lamb remain under the altar. And what are they doing? Asking, how long, O Lord, until you vindicate our testimony as we spoke of your name? He pledges to them just a little while longer. Out of that same place, the angel comes who has authority over the fire. Chapter 8 same source, out from the altar, the angel, chapter 8, gathers fire from the altar, and he casts it upon the earth, and judgment prevails. Saints are crying out under the altar, vindicate our testimony, as we spoke of you, died for you, a little while longer, and you will be vindicated. Revelation 14, at the end of world history, here is the vindication of the Lamb's testimony. The vindication of all who trusted in Him. All who spoke His eternal glory and suffered martyrdom. They are vindicated. And the church is gathered. And all who resist the eternal gospel, had no time or room for it, are judged. What are they judged for? How are they judged? Judged by what? The standard of the Lord Jesus Christ. Either receiving his gospel or finding no room. This is the method of judgment. He is the standard by which you are judged. Be hidden in him. Final portion here, if we just kind of consider this other judgment just briefly, we see... Notice that the two harvests are definitely distinct because the one happens in a single positive ingathering, right? You see that in verse 16. So he sat on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. That is, they're gathered. The Lord Jesus Christ gathered the rest remaining harvest of all those who trust in him. And then you look at the second one, there are two separate actions the second harvest of the grapes. Look at the two actions of verse 19 in the grape harvest. And again, I trust that it's confirming your heart, uniting you to Jesus, or it is causing you fear and trepidation in light of your standing. 
with the eternal gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because look at it, it's kind of hard to look on. But look at the imagery, it could not be worse. Verse 19, for the great harvest, the angel swung his sickle across the earth, and one, he gathered the great harvest of the earth. Step one, they're gathered. This is unlike what we saw with the wheat. Here we see they are gathered. Then after having gathered them, he throws them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Those who have resisted the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, neutrality. There is none in the text of Scripture. You are gathered and you hear, well done. Enter into my Father's joy. Enter into the land of rest. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. They shall have rest. What we see here in the, gra- in the gathering of the grapes is they are then gathered from the earth by the angel who has authority over fire. Judgment. 23 out of 24 times. The nature of this gathering is one of the judgment. They are then gathered. Here you are. This is all who resists the Lord Jesus Christ. He has appeared in the glory and clouds. And all who resisted weep and mourn. We're sorry. We believe now. They are gathered. And they are thrown. the wine press of God's wrath. But we believe now this is an appointed day by the Father to execute His eternal decree, to gather His elect who heard the gospel and by faith confessed and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and were so saved. And those who said, you're annoying, get away. Etc., 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 etc. They are gathered and they are thrown into a wine press of wrath. No one is left standing. I don't say these things lightly. As I share them, this is one of the strengths of preaching through the Word of God. Where I don't get everybody together and think, I'm going to blow them downtown with the wrath of God today. No one will be left standing at Redeemer when I'm done. And then I become like a topical series for two years on the wrath of God and nobody's safe but me. You know that's not how we operate here at Redeemer. That's not what the Lord has called us to do. As men who stand and proclaim his truth. We commit to the text of Holy Scripture and we all submit to its truth. I know you have lost loved ones, those who deny the Lord Jesus Christ and his eternal gospel, who you care about and love. You have co workers who are highly moral, befriend you almost better than your church. Trust us on the testimony. It's hard for you to receive such a text. I don't glory in the thought any more than you. 
but we're not the judge and arbiter of what is right. If we truly loved our loved ones, then we'll continue what we were instructed in the first portion of Revelation 14. Proclaim to them the eternal gospel. In love, fear God and give him the glory. This is the push of the eternal gospel. Wrath is coming. And I'm investing with you, the church, to proclaim this eternal gospel from Samaria, Judea, Jerusalem, God must not love anybody. He gave us the gospel in propositional form to speak it. Romans 10 says, by hearing the gospel, faith comes from the heart. And by faith, believe. Don't just shrink back from the reality of wrath. Be motivated with the eternal gospel to speak a loving God's truth. There's no greater way to consider the love of God in this work of wrath than as you remember earlier in the chapter, Babylon, culture. Babylon will drink the cup of God's wrath. Pull for him. And all who loved her got drunk with her every day on her immorality. They too will turn and drink with her once again the cup of God's wrath. Lest they come to the sun as himself drank the cup of God's wrath. Do you see the imagery? You drink the cup of God's wrath or you receive Christ who drank the cup that the Father has given me on behalf of sinful men. No one gets out of drinking. We either receive the Lamb of God slain for us, who drank the bitter cup on our behalf, or we stand outside of him. When he appears, we will weep and we will wail to drink the cup of God's wrath preserved for us. Justly. The final imagery I just want to conclude with you is the graphic nature of this text about the blood that will flow from the wine press. How are we to recognize this? How are we to receive the imagery that blood will flow to the horse's bridle for roughly 200 miles? How are we to wrap our mind around this imagery? This is an image speaking of the absolute destruction 
of all who are found outside of Christ. It's overwhelming. If we look at literature in the first century outside of the Bible, we recognize this usage of horses to communicate one who is victorious and overwhelmed his enemy in battle. The chest cavity of a horse oftentimes is used to speak of victory. My enemy's blood will flow through the chest cavity of a horse. Our horses will be swimming in blood. It's kind of like as you speak, and I'm trying to help Owen recognize, we're not actually killing anyone when we win. When we win, we say, oh, we killed them. What we're speaking about is overwhelming victory. Achieving first place. When we speak of the blood that will flow for 200 miles, that is the entire strip there of Israel. This whole land will be filled with blood. God will overwhelmingly and decisively destroy his enemies. Who's an enemy? All who are outside of Christ. I beg just come and hear. Let us all come and receive. Father, we think of this text of Scripture.